Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I am joined, as always, by Carl Truman and Amy Bird. And today, we want to talk about a topic that I think sometimes conservative Protestants, maybe conser- maybe even more so conservative Reformed Presbyterians, um, might not talk about much. And part of it is, is because we want to be cautious not to go off the rails. But it's a subject that needs to be talked about because it's there right in our Bible and and it's an important subject because it has bearing on what we face day in and day out. And the subject is the activity of the demonic in this life. As a pastor, I've been asked for years questions, thoughtful, good questions from laypersons about my thoughts on demon possession and, and should we be afraid of demons? How active is Satan in our world? It's a subject that causes oftentimes a lot of Christians to blush because it we know that anytime we bring up the subject of demons or Satan, we're going to be kind of looked down upon or mocked by our cultured despisers, you know, and, and we suddenly almost defer back to a kind of Boltmannian skepticism where, you know, how can we expect people to believe these things in the age of the electric light bulb? But the fact is, Christianity is a supernatural religion. We believe in a supernatural world, and we believe that there is this being referred to as Satan. We believe that there are such beings as demons. And so I thought we would address a couple of things related to that. Questions like, how do we respond to skeptics? Talk about a couple specific passages in particular. And then things like, you know, can Christians be demon-possessed? So having recently been in Washington, D.C. and driven right by the exorcist stairs, you all know what those are? It's right over by Georgetown University, which I find to be particularly appropriate. And it's just up the street from Georgetown Cupcakes, by the way, the Exorcist Stairs. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. Your life will not be diminished whatsoever. But let me ask Carl and Amy this, first of all. What are they? Oh, the Exorcist Stairs. Oh, okay. (laughs) uh, from, From the movie The Exorcist. Okay. Where near the end, the priest who has called the demons out of out of linda blair the little girl and said you know take me take me and they do and he flings himself out the window and down this steep staircase you, the movie was filmed there in georgetown oh. you go right to those steps uh, I actually my youngest son is a georgetown graduate and i gave them so much money over the year <laughs> i think i own two of those steps <laughs> <laughs> carl has stenciled his name yeah on two of those steps i have a right though. to two of those steps <laughs> exactly exactly so let me ask this um how do we kind of heed c.s lewis's good counsel on the fact that that when it comes to demons and the demonic we need to avoid two separate errors we need to avoid the error of denial and we need to avoid the error of the enthusiasts that would see, you know, a demon behind every rock. How do we approach the reality of this spiritual conflict that we live in, where there really is demonic realities? How do we acknowledge that without going into kind of the error of the enthusiasts? Any thoughts? 
read a bunch of Frank Peretti books. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> They'll cause your car to break down. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a tough question to answer in a number of ways. I mean, first, clearly the New Testament speaks about demonic powers and, and the narratives of the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles give plenty of examples of demonic activities, very real, very concrete. Christ speaks to these demons at points. They appear to have personalities. Mm-hmm. self-consciousness, we might say. One can only avoid coming to that conclusion by doing great damage to the text, I think. Yeah. The self-evident teaching of Scripture is that demons exist and have personalities. I think it gets complicated on a couple of fronts. I mean, one, there is the issue of, of the decisive work of Christ, where he triumphs over the demonic mm-hmm. powers, makes a show of them on the cross. Colossians. Uh, yeah, yeah the, the question then becomes... How does that modify, affect, or change the world that we see in the New Testament relative to the world we live in today? So I think that's one question one has to address. The second thing I think to be careful of is sometimes talk of demons can be used to get ourselves off the hook mm-hmm. morally. It wasn't me, it was the demons what done it, my lad, kind of thing. That's we can put down horrendous sin for which we need to take responsibility. Right. We can sort of blame it on somebody else. And sometimes we do that in a very light way. You hear about people talking about wrestling with their own demons, and typically mm. they're not there talking about demons as outlined in the New Testament, but they are in a sense passing the buck, passing their responsibility for their sin on to another. Then on the other hand, I think we need to realize that we live, at least in the West, in a, in a world where we have become increasingly to use sort of Charles Taylor's kind of language, increasingly buffered relative to the supernatural mm-hmm. in the world. That I see this, my wife and I are different on this. You know, I grew up in England in a situation where I was really very skeptical about mm-hmm. these things. My wife grew up in a very rural situation uh, in Scotland, much more open to the supernatural things of the natural world, one might say. So right. we also bring our own baggage that I'm aware that as soon as people start to talk to me about demons today, I'm beginning to think, okay, I'm dealing with a loony here. But that's a cultural reaction. Right. That's not a biblically informed reaction. I think we need to be aware of the cultural baggage we bring to bear on these well, things. So much of that cultural baggage is even in evangelicalism. I mean, I remember, I think it was like in my 20s, there was some book that came out I believe it was called Bondage Breakers, and people were passing it around, and it was all yeah. about the reality of demons. And I mean, I had friends reading it, and I hadn't read it, but they start talking to me about you know odd things like, oh, you know, at three a.m. demons are the most active. Yeah, yeah. you know, and and if you're waking up at three a.m. and you can't go back to sleep, well, it's you know spiritual warfare. Yeah, that's the guys being chucked out of the pub at that time. That's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I mean, like, and you know, where in scripture do you see any? Right anything that says that. Yeah, Amy, you bring up a really good point, and I know exactly the book that you're talking about, and there was a series of books from the same author, and his name, for whatever reason, is slipping my mind, but they became very popular among some conservative evangelical circles mm-hmm. and promoted by some well-known evangelicals, unfortunately. And Neil, what Anderson. Does, Neil Anderson. Neil Anderson. Yep. And his material is problematic because it is so extra-biblical. And doesn't, in my opinion, give credence to what Carl brought up earlier about the decisive victory in Christ. Now, we will still be 
harassed. And we still have to deal with the fact that there are principalities and powers. There are demonic forces that aid me in my sin, that encourage me in my sin and temptation. But the kind of control that is given to them in those Neil Anderson books is just, in my opinion, not biblical. Now, I want to bring up a point because sometimes skeptics of the scriptures at this point, when there are accounts of demon possession, tend to have kind of a chronological snobbery, some of it going back to the point Carl made about Charles Taylor's observation. And and we look back and we say, well, you know, this demon possession stuff, that was just a primitive people's way to explain mental illness or antisocial behavior. And was there some of that in the first century? I would imagine so. However, let's also keep in mind that Jesus and his disciples were Jewish men. They were not magical thinking pagans. They were Jewish men whose worldview was formed by the Old Testament. And if you look at the Old Testament, demon possession is either completely absent or only just kind of hinted at in a few places. Certainly, there's demonic activity described. But in terms of the overall witness of the Old Testament, it's very rare. And so, Jesus and the disciples were not these magical thinking spiritualists that saw a demon behind every sneeze. They didn't. And to some degree, demon possession might well have shocked Paul as much as it would have shocked us. You know, Paul was a sophisticated man for his age. And so I just want to kind of rescue some of the common thinking out there. Well, you know, they saw demons everywhere. Well, no, the disciples wouldn't have been like that more willing to believe some of these things perhaps, but maybe we should be as well. And so let's keep in mind that the New Testament does not put demons at the forefront and at the center and doesn't see a fairy behind every sneeze. It's actually careful in how it describes these these events. So I, I say all that to say, you know, the Bible is not a superstitious book, but it does point out the supernatural. And it's interesting, too, like when Jesus is confronted with this man, Legion, you know, when he identifies oh, the, himself as Legion. Gathering, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting how once he casts the demons out of this man and, you know, into the swine, mm-hmm. that the people then, like all the other miracles he did, the people were attracted to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when he did this, like they wanted him to leave. Right. Yeah. I find that like astounding. Yeah. Except there could be a simple economic reason for that. Well, kill, the, kill, the bunch, kill a bunch of their pigs. Yeah. yeah, and it's clearly an area of Gentile and Roman occupation. Mm-hmm. So presumably the local economy was built upon selling pigs. Yeah, to he messed yep. things up a little bit. So he now, nevertheless, the tragedy of that event, though, yeah. is that in Matthew's account, there's two men, and it's likely, since Matthew was probably an eyewitness, it's likely that Mark and Luke's record of the one man is just simply they were going by what they were told, and there was perhaps one of the two that was more prominently featured. The point being is that the tragedy that that shows in the human heart, though, that here you have these two men who were dangerous, who were infamous in that area. They were clearly deeply, deep. they went about naked, living among the tombs. Mm-hmm. No one dared pass their way. And here they are miraculously delivered, clothed and in their right mind with the herdsmen going back to the town, giving testimony of what astounding thing had happened. Mm -hmm. And clearly, of course, what we see is this common, ordinary resistance to the Lordship of Christ, which prefers pigs 
to, right, to, the, yeah. to the Lord Jesus. Now, again, I think that the explanation is rather simple in terms of Jesus hurt their economy for a while there. But what it shows is that is that much more common than demonic opposition to the Lordship of Christ is the everyday, ordinary opposition to Christ, like he hurt my pocketbook. And people will, will refuse to yield to Christ for those ordinary reasons without any aid from demonic possession. How does this pan out pastorally, Todd? I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, still has a right for exorcism. Right. I don't know how often it's deployed, and I, you know, Georgetown. My experience of the Jesuits at Georgetown, I, I very much doubt that. Probably not, none of them believe in demons at Georgetown. Uh, so. Probably, probably not. Yeah. But they still have a right for it. Mm-hmm. So clearly, in the Roman Catholic Church, the part of their pastoral arsenal, if you like, is right. exorcism. I, mean, right. I, don't, I have no idea how often it's used. Mm-hmm. But what about uh, today when you're faced with somebody and you comes to your office to talk about something? Does it ever cross your mind? I might be dealing with somebody who's possessed here. Or would that be a loony conclusion to come to? No, it's not loony. I don't think it's common. And again, even in Jesus's ministry, we have several accounts of exorcism and references to that. But we would expect that the breaking into our world of the Messiah would cause an uproar in the demonic. So we would expect, I think, to see much more of it in Jesus and the apostles' ministry right. than we would in our own day. That said, I don't see any reason to believe that there is no more demonic possession. So now I've had two experiences that after a lot of time and a lot of counsel and a lot of thought, I, I came to the conclusion that there was at least very strong demonic influence involved more than just kind of the the harassing and temptation that every believer will experience but something that would be akin to possession and it was scary and weird and i think beyond just mental illness again i don't think it's common but i think it still happens and i think that we can learn from jesus's example when Jesus performed an exorcism, it's remarkable in how free those instances were of dramatic flourish and sensationalism. You know, with the example of the gathering demoniacs, he deals with them with one word. Yeah. Go. But and it's and no they're contest. gone. It is no yes. contest. Though. Exactly. God incarnate comes up against these mm-hmm. things. And uh, so I don't I don't see a biblical model for a kind of exorcism where you know it's some kind of seventy two hour process. Now again culminating on the steps of George Tang. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It seems yeah. to me that given what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection that to deal with a demonized person should not require the kind of blood, sweat, and tears and the kind of thing we see in these Hollywood productions of demon possessions and the kind of things that we're treated to in a lot of charismatic contexts. I just, I don't know where there's a biblical category for that, and I don't know how to justify that sort of thing, given what the cross represented. Yeah, remember, yeah. remember what the demons said to Jesus there 
in that region south of the Sea of Galilee. They were well aware of who he was. Right. And they were well aware of, of his mission and their own fate. You know, have you come to torment us before the time? Mm-hmm. So they knew what they were headed for. Yeah. They knew that Christ had not accomplished atonement yet. And so they were confused. Hold it, hold it. You're not supposed to judge us yet. The point being, Carl, you referenced it earlier, Paul's words in Colossians chapter two about the cross, putting the principalities and powers to open shame. Mm-hmm. And since that is true, I don't think that dealing with a demonized person, should that come about, should be some sort of a, a long, drawn-out contest where it kills several people in the room and a, and a priest is thrown out the window and all of these kinds of things. I just don't see a biblical justification for that sort of dangerous drama in, yeah. in those terms. Now, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Why is it that when we hear stories of demonic possession, they're almost always from overseas missionaries rather than, say, church planters in Manhattan or Houston, Texas. Any thoughts on that? I've got a thought, but I'd be interested to see why we think that is. Because, I mean, it's true. That's where most of these stories come from. And, and you can talk to, to conservative, if you like, Presbyterian missionaries who've seen things that they never thought they would see until they went to more primitive cultures. Why might that be? One level, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. Uh, on another level, I think, uh, again, that there's a certain cultural and social expectation here that in a society where one would expect these things to happen, they tend to happen more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to generalize without knowing specific examples, but I could see myself going to a land where people are very open to the supernatural in the natural, where they're open to to strange phenomena. And it would not surprise me then to hear reports of more strange phenomena, perhaps even to see things that are interpreted in a strange and supernatural way. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a strong cultural aspect to that. I also think that if if you're looking for ways of, assume that demons are culturally sensitive in some way and are able to use the idioms of the culture to achieve Mm-hmm. that which they wish to wish yes. to do. So the idioms of the culture in Houston, Texas are going to be very different from the idioms of a culture in a, a village in Haiti, for example. Right. So I think that that could well be, mm-hmm. be a factor as well. Yeah. yeah. I tend to believe that there's not a super complicated explanation to it, and very similar to what you're saying there, Carl, which is it would make sense that it would serve the purpose of the demonic to be much more overt in activity in a culture where the persons there of that culture will have a tendency to retreat further into their paganism as demons are overt. And it would serve the purpose of the demonic very much in places like Houston and Manhattan to be much more subtle. Right. That's what I was going to say. I mean, I think that it's easy for Christians, um, who are used to the preaching of the gospel and um, have broadly Christian categories to to not be around, you know, this kind of activity to then just assume that there is no Mm -hmm. spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are a supernatural faith and we also are people who pray. Right. And I just think that that's a very important element to talk about Mm -hmm. when we're talking about spiritual warfare, because that's a very spiritual thing Mm -hmm that we're asked to do, we're told to do, we're invited to do, that 
really does make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you think about a culture that does not have even in a broad sense, biblical categories, but has fundamentally pagan categories for overt demonic activity to come about. Typically what happens is it drives those people deeper into, you know, seeking out help from a witch doctor or going deeper into pagan practices or bowing before a giant Buddha, Mm -hmm. um, which again would serve the purposes of the principalities and powers. I was waiting for you to mention yoga there, Todd. <laughs> and yoga. And of course, they would do <laughs> yoga. Because of course, they own stretches. And <laughs> they, they would do <laughs> yoga. Boy, Carl, thanks for bringing that up. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's good stuff. Well, you know, again, one of the things that we want to affirm is that we are people of the book. The Bible clearly, from the moment that the judgment is announced upon the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, that there's going to be a battle going on between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And to a large degree, human history demonstrates that battle that has gone on. That battle is outlined throughout the scriptures. And we should not be surprised then that we live in a world where we see and feel and experience the warfare that is going on around us. We are a a spiritual people. We believe in the supernatural. And so, therefore, we believe what scripture teaches us about the enemy that is there. He's likened to a, a lion that goes about like a, seeking whom he may devour. He's, he's uh, called a liar, an accuser of the brethren, and it goes on from there. That said, he is a defeated enemy. He's been put to open shame. When Christ died on his cross, his, his death sentence was sealed at that point. The resurrection, once again, completing the redemptive work of Christ. And while Christians should be very aware of the fact that we are aided in our rebellion, we are aided in our sin by supernatural forces that hate us and hate the advance of the gospel. Nevertheless, we would want to sing with Luther, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. And so that is good news. Let's be aware of what goes on. Let's be aware of the accuser, but let's not give him greater power than he should have in light of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Well, thanks for joining us today. We hope this was helpful. And until next time, we'll see you again at Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... And the book, in a sense, wanted to be written. I didn't want to write it. I felt that I needed to write it to help people learn how to lament well. You asked the question, does anger at God have a place in the Christian life? How would you express the need for, the importance of lamenting well in the life of the Christian? That interview is next time. Join us then.
I don't know, Carl, you're OPC, and I don't think that, that the OPC believes in, uh, in demons. Or a <laughs> we do. World. We do. We, we have certain very strong views about the PCA, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 